0: Hey, deserving listeners, today I thought I would talk about the psychology involved in the Amanda Knox case. Amanda Knox. Hopefully you've heard of her. If you haven't, you're going to learn a lot about her. When this case was active in the media, I wasn't really paying attention to the news back then in the late zeros. So I barely knew anything about it until I looked into it this week. I remember back then hearing bits and pieces of the case in the news. I remember hearing there was this you know, young woman from Seattle involved in some sort of drug-induced satanic sex ring orgy thing, and that someone was murdered in Italy. And I remember thinking, wow, this, uh, this you know, girl sounds like a monster. And then every now and then, I would hear Amanda Knox come up in the news again. But it, it just didn't really interest me. For some reason, it just seemed like tabloid crap and didn't really pay attention to it. And then, this week, I watched the new documentary on Netflix. And since I trust Netflix to give me things that are uh, of good quality, I watched it, and it's uh, actually pretty good. It's not amazing, you know, in terms... It's not like making a murder or anything, but it's, you know, worth a watch. And it's just... Uh, I think it's just like an hour and a half or something, so it's not a huge commitment. It's But it, it really explains... The whole story in a concise manner, in a compelling manner. They have a lot of great interviews and visuals and stuff. Well, that's what I'm going to talk about today—not the documentary, but the entire Amanda Knox case. I'm going to review the facts of the case, and I'm going to talk about some of the societal implications, sexism, um, sex and violence, uh, media, and then I'm going to end with a discussion regarding the. Research and psychology of false confessions, because there's a lot of research on false confessions. False confessions. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and a professor. I just want to do a tiny little announcement here. The other day, there was a political ad. You know, you, you know, if you've been listening to the podcast, you know that recently we started adding ads to the podcast and. I, I there's a their organization Blog talk radio that actually finds all the ads for me and they just they just tag it onto to my podcast and I don't have any control over which ads get tagged onto the podcast so far it seems to be a lot of Geico ads which seem you know innocent but the other day it was a political ad it was actually a Trump ad <laughs> and it was shocking i I will sometimes just sort of see what ads are being played. And the other morning, I think it was Tuesday morning, I listened and it was this Trump ad. It was, you know, one of those classic political ads, like I'm Donald Trump and I approve this message. Let's make America great again. It was like a full on Trump ad. And, and I just thought, Oh my God, you know, if it was a Hillary ad, I would, I actually wouldn't prefer that either. I just don't want my podcast, this, our podcast to, have that kind of thing at the beginning of it. it. Just seems like Geico, okay, but politics. It just seems uncool, and so I immediately started getting emails from listeners saying various different things. So people are like, "Oh, you know, isn't that funny? You had a Trump ad <laughs> on your podcast today. I just wanted you to know that that's just kind of weird." And then other people were saying like they're very upset. They're they're saying, "How could you do this? This is terrible." This goes against everything that I believe in. I can't believe my favorite podcast did this to me. You're a terrible person. <laughs> I mean, they didn't go that far. But anyway, so I just want to let everyone know that I you know, contacted Blog Talk Radio, and I was like, look, my listeners are having varied reactions, including some of them are quite upset about it. And they immediately got back to me and said, we're so sorry. The guy who was actually who would actually screen these ads and would normally not have political ads on our podcasts, he's on Jewish holiday today on Tuesday. And so he wasn't able to to do that. And so that's why this happened. And so they immediately pulled all the ads and, and then they got rid of all the political ads. And so... And I actually didn't expect them to do that. I thought they would say, look, you know, Trump paid us money to play these ads. And so that's just the way we're going to do that. Because, you know, capitalism, that's how capitalism works. That's what I thought was going to happen. But that isn't what happened. They were actually very responsive to our listeners. And I think that's great. That was sort of the first test of how responsive they are. And, you know, they personally called me and apologized. And they wanted to apologize to the listeners that, you know, they... They, they know better than to do that kind of thing. And um, they were, they're were they sorry about that. So I just wanted to announce that. Also, another thing I just want to tell everyone is that we have our very first uh, sponsor that I will be doing a live read of. If you listen to other podcasts, you'll hear people, uh, the actual podcasters do the advertising. And so I'm about to do that uh, from this point forward for the next 30 seconds. Uh, they have actually have me a script that I'm supposed to uh, it's for Loot Crate. I, I don't know if you've heard of it before. They they actually have a, a script they want me to read, but I, it just seems like it's taking it too far to to read the the ad as it is. But I, I will say, I they actually ran a number of products past me, and um, I I didn't think these other products would be good for listeners. But I think Loot Crate is actually a good product for for you guys. You don't have to do it, but if you if you do do it, you want to use. The promo code that actually makes us a little—we get a little kickback. I think like twenty bucks for every person who signs up from the podcast. And you have to go to lootcrate.com/slash-psychology. So that's the key. If if you do loot, if you you know, in your URL on your browser, you go lootcrate.com/slash-psychology, then or promo code psychology. Now how does this work i don 't know exactly how it works, but when if i 'm guessing there 's a promo code somewhere, let me look at the w- goddamn website uh, da, 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 i don 't know there 's probably some kind of there's w- probably when you 're doing the checkout there 's like do, do you have a promo code? Psychology is the key here it 's easier to remember it 's psychology psychology okay, but Lucrate, what is it well it's it's i think it 's kind of cool and i 'm thinking about buying it myself because it looks fun. You pay i think under twenty bucks a month. And every month you get this box with cool stuff in it. Like there's one, there's like Bill and Ted stuff. There's star Wars stuff. There's anime stuff. And you, you, there's different kinds of, there's different kind of crates you get every month. You probably already know about this product, but what I was thinking would be great is that, you know, the holidays are coming up. Birthdays are coming up. I think it's a great gift to people, you know, uh Batman stuff, Dungeons and Dragons stuff, I'm seeing BB8 here, uh video game, um Fallout, Zelda, Warcraft, Nintendo, Adventure Time, that's fun. Um uh, uh so yeah, so they have a wizarding, so they have a, you know, a uh Harry Potter uh crate. Anyway, it'd be great if you did that. Uh, you could give someone special someone a gift, and also, you know, you're giving us a little kickback. Again, I think it's like twenty bucks. Um, so yeah, go to lootcrate.com, use the promo code psychology, and get your geek stuff. Also, they also I think they want me to tell you that there's a special thing for October about like um, uh, you know horror types of loot crates. And I don't know exactly how that works, but that seems kind of fun for October. Anyway, (laughs) so that's my first read. My God, I hope this works. Okay, so let's get back to the topic at hand. I have a lot to say. So the documentary opens up with Amanda Knox saying something quite compelling, actually. There's a number of interviews with her that I think are uh, quite moving. And she says... Um, uh, either I'm a psychopath in sheep's clothing or I'm you. And she elaborates on that. She's just like either I'm some sort of monster you know, someone who is capable of doing horrendous things for no good reason, or i'm I'm like you, I'm just I'm just like you, and this could happen to you. so you're either afraid of me as a psychopathic satanic killer or you're afraid that, you know, the thing that happened to me could happen to you. Either way, it's kind of scary. And I think that's why she thinks we're so compelled to her story as opposed to all the other stories that happen in the world. So this is the bookends of the documentary. They start off with this question, either I'm a psychopath in sheep's clothing or I'm just like you. And it's also the question that is asked at the end of the documentary. And so it would seem from this opening that the documentary will provide a kind of uh, discourse between these two places. She's either a psychopath in sheep's clothing, or she's an innocent person just like you. But really, the documentary, I think, clearly has an opinion as to the answer of the question that Amanda Knox asks at the beginning. And um, I think that it will become clear as I present um, the information of the case, uh, what the documentary was saying. So the information I'm about to tell you is all from the Internet. It's from the documentary. It's from other news sources. So some of this might be wrong, but so I apologize in advance. Every once in a while I do a podcast about this sort of thing, and I'll get one or two things wrong, and then I'll get blasted on the Internet Someone will listen to the entire episode <laughs> and pick one tiny little thing I got wrong and email me. I mean, it's fine uh, to do that. Just don't be a dick about it if you're going to point something out. I don't mind being corrected, but, um, you know, D- imagine yourself giving a pre- working hard for weeks to, de- to develop a presentation. You give the presentation, and 99.9% of it is solid and this tiny little detail is wrong, and then someone comes up to you after the talk. You're in a lecture hall or something, and they just all they you know they they proceed to li- stand there and listen to you for two hours, and then they find one tiny thing, and they come up to you, and and that's all that they say. Oh, by the way, that one thing you said that was stupid, and then they just walk away. That's what the internet is like, people. <laughs> not not all the people on the internet, but um, you know, a good amount of people. Okay, so. Now, the history. So let's go back all the way to the beginning of Amanda's life. I'm not going to go into too much detail because detail, I actually don't know that much because I couldn't really find that much about Amanda's childhood and her upbringing or anything. From all accounts, it seems like she had a total, normal, <laughs> uneventful childhood. So she grew up in West Seattle. For for those of you who aren't from the area, West Seattle is, is a part of Seattle proper. It's like a you know, a a borough, shall we say a neighborhood in Seattle called West Seattle. It's a pretty big neighborhood. It's one of the major neighborhoods in Seattle. And it's a suburb of downtown. And it's southwest of downtown. It's it's one of the main hills in Seattle. Seattle has a number of big hills, not big, but you know, hills. And West Seattle is one of the main hills in Seattle. There's a lot of fancy houses up there, not super fancy. I mean, now they're probably worth like $2 million given the prices of homes in Seattle, but, but they're, um, you know, they're, they're pro- a lot of them were built a hundred years ago. A lot of them have been renovated. They have those, those kind of nice porches on the front and I don't know if they call them craftsman homes, but anyway, it's not all like that. And they have like cute little shops and stuff. Um, some of my favorite restaurants and shops and, uh, bakeries are up there. Um, there's a long beach front. I used to go there every weekend to exercise. People play beach volleyball there in the summer. Kids have bonfires or scuba divers. There's wedding. A lot of people get wedding photos in West Seattle because you can look across the bay at downtown and see so you have this wonderful... Actually, the beginning of Psychology in Seattle until recently, the intro for the YouTube videos was a shot from West Seattle looking across the bay at downtown. Um, there's a lot of seafood restaurants over there anyway. So she grew up in West Seattle. I couldn't find much about her childhood and maybe more will come out later, but this is all that I could really find that was relevant. She was born in 1987 in Seattle. Her mother was a math teacher. Her father was, uh, one of the vice presidents at Macy's of finance. So he was doing pretty well. The parents divorced when she was a toddler. She was middle class. She played soccer. And if you're familiar with soccer, at least in the Northwest, I see a lot of people, maybe girls, soccer teams, they often will have nicknames. I think it's sort of a thing. Maybe it wasn't at my high school, but I feel like a lot of schools, whenever you get a chance to have a jersey with your name on it, a lot of times it's a, a nickname, some sort of silly nickname. And her silly nickname, since her name was Amanda Knox, was Foxy Noxy. So she's playing soccer as a young teenager, and everyone has their own little silly nickname, and she had this nickname, Foxy Noxy, and that'll come up later in a big way. She graduated from Seattle Prep High School. It's a fancy private school, not super fancy, but, you know, private school on North Capitol Hill. It's actually right by one of my friend's houses, and I would park in front of Seattle Prep all the time. And incidentally, it's near Macklemore's house on Capitol Hill, if you're familiar. Familiar. Um, <clears throat> then she went to the University of Washington to study linguistics. That's where I went, UW. She made the dean's list, which is a pretty big deal because University of Washington is uh, you know, pretty competitive school. It's, it's, um, it's one of the harder schools to get into in the area. And to actually make the dean's list is a pretty big deal. I was nowhere near the dean's list when I went to UW. She apparently partied like a typical UW student. You know, they they have all the drinking and the you know, and the sexing and the young people things that happen in college that I participated in as well when I was at UW. Uh, friends would say that she was kind and gentle, which after experiencing her in interviews and in this documentary, I, I can see how she would come across to people as uh, gentle and kind, um, a little obnoxious. They have some, but you know she's young, so whatever. Her family described her as being outgoing but naive. So outgoing but naive. From so, let me just <clears throat> speculate a little bit on her childhood. I think that she was raised in a fairly uh, protective manner. I think that her parents didn't expose her, probably, you know, for the better, really, to a lot of bad things in life. And so from the looks of it, by, you know, by the time she was at the University of Washington, she wasn't an old soul. Let's just put it that way. I think she had a little bit of um, uh, an immaturity to her. Maybe it's normal uh, level of immaturity for that age, but she definitely didn't come across like she was wise or that she was very responsible or really knew who she was yet or anything like that. So as part of her linguistic degree, about halfway through her time at the University of Washington, she decided she wanted to go to Italy to study at the University for Foreigners as an exchange student there for a year. She was planning on going there for a year. And I just love the name of that university. I'm sure it has an Italian name, but it I think it's translated into the university for foreigners. So it's so um, descriptive, makes me wonder what their mascot is, you know, like just a foreigner. (laughs) I don't know. Her stepfather, incidentally, didn't want her to go to Italy because he thought she was too naive to travel by herself. So again, just that naivete to comment on. In the documentary, she describes how she was basically feeling like she needed to grow up and she felt dependent on her family. She was, you know, seeming like I said, seemingly quite dependent on her family and uh, w- went to a private school and then went to UW, which is actually pretty close to West Seattle and maybe she even lived at home. I don't know. But she was attracted to Italy, this trip to Italy, this big trip as a way to grow up and become an independent person. She said in the documentary, uh, I wanted to find myself in this new faraway place. And this is a common thing for people to do. It's uh, not unhealthy to do it. It's a bit of a uh, it can go wrong, obviously, but um, but you know if you feel like you can't really grow up without um, it, it, so a lot of I, I've I've run into this with clients in in my personal life before. There are people who feel like the only way they can really individuate and differentiate is if they move far away for a long period of time. They they want to just be free from the influence of their family, and you know there's wisdom to that. There's also some folly to that but some wisdom okay so she goes to the university uh, for foreigners and it's this small uh, attractive little hilltop town in Italy and Amanda uh, finds herself uh, roommates with Meredith Kircher who was also an exchange student but she was from London she was also Kircher uh, Meredith Kircher was also studying linguistics as Amanda Knox and Meredith and, I mean, incidentally, Amanda, are both good-looking young women, attractive young women in a foreign land, you know, roommates together. And Meredith looks half Persian. I think her mom is Persian or Pakistani or something along, or Indian perhaps. Some, But um, Meredith uh, has, you know, that kind of, like myself, a a, you know, a halfy kind of look to her. <laughs> anyway. Within a short amount of time, Amanda got a job at a bar and also within a short amount of time in Italy, this is all within like the first month or something, she met Raphael Sosolito. So Solecito Solecito. Raphael. At a concert, she she met him and they instantly fell in love. Incidentally, just Fast forwarding here, they their relationship was only for five days. <laughs> I mean, sometimes if you if you're familiar a little bit with the story, you know you're just like, oh, she had this boyfriend. Well, their relationship lasted for five days because five days later was when the murder happened. So they had this this five is you know five day relationship, and it's just interesting to learn that. But anyway, so both of them, uh, Raphael and Amanda. Said that they had never really been in love before. This is the first time that they'd ever been in love. And so, and you can tell from video footage of the two of them and the way that they talked that they were falling head over heels for each other. You know, this very nice, shy, inexperienced Italian boy and this um, naive American girl from Seattle in a foreign land and she meets this cute guy and, and they're, they're just all over each other. And they said that they spent all their time together and they would smoke pot and they would make love and they would, they just, you know, five days of relationship bliss. So now, so five days later, Amanda was supposed to work one night at the bar, but her boss Patrick, whom I'll get into more in a second, her boss, Patrick texted her and said that she wasn't needed at the bar. So she, so Amanda spent the night at her boyfriend's instead. And Amanda and Raphael both talk about how they spent the night together and they made dinner and they made love. There's a lot of very descriptive, um, making love stories. And it, and again, it, it The way they say it, even at their age now, which is a lot older, I think, you know, they're in their late 20s, they just have a kind of naivete about the way they even talk about life. You just have to kind of see them to, to they seem like younger than they actually are, you know. Anyway, um, OK, so November 2nd, 2007. So this is the day after um, the murder. Amanda returns home at noon the next day. So she spent the night at Raphael. She, she goes home and she fa- and they live in this, this house and there's a bunch of rooms. There's a downstairs and it's this, it, you have to see the documentary. It's this, it's this really great house. It really makes me, I don't know if I would want to stay in this house specifically, but it makes me want to go to this town in Italy and like stay in a place nearby. Cause there's this beautiful little hillside and, this house has this deck and it overlooks the this valley area or something. It just looks like this, but it lo- also looks like a cheap rental house at the same time. So it's a cheap rental house in a great location with this greenery. Anyway, so Amanda returns home a- at around noon and she saw that the door was ajar. And she that didn't alarm her uh be, you know, for whatever reason. And then she went inside, she got undressed, and she went to the bathroom because she wanted to take a shower. And she saw some drops of blood in the sink. And if you see the pictures, it's actually pretty faint drops of blood. It's not like a ton of blood. Um, she didn't think much of it. She just thought, okay, I guess someone cut themselves or whatever. And then she takes a shower. And after she showered, That's when she saw more blood on the bath mat. And they show a picture of it. And, you know, it's pretty noticeable red blood on a white bath mat. It looks like a footprint. And this doesn't look like, oh, someone just cut themselves. This amount of blood looks like something was wrong, you know. It looks like a crime scene. Let's just put it that way. But she you know, didn't think much of it. She saw the blood there and she thought, well, I don't know what that is. And then she proceeds to blow dry her hair. And then she looks in the toilet and she sees some feces, some poop in the toilet. And they show a picture of this in the documentary. It's pretty, it's pretty gnarly. The poop is not in the water. I think it's like up on this. It's like a you have to see it. it. It looks like if I saw this, I would have been like, holy shit, someone destroyed my toilet. Why didn't they fucking flush it? <laughs> um, but anyway, she looks in the toilet and she just sees this, you know, toilet destroyed by somebody. And then that's when she said that that's when something occurred to her like something was wrong. And she felt... The cre- like the creep since she felt like someone might be in the house and i just find this to be fascinating because you know the door's ajar a little bit of blood on the sink takes a shower steps out of the shower a little you know more blood on the bath mat she doesn't think of a single thing and then she sees poop in the toilet and then she starts feeling creeped out because <laughs> to me it's like logically poop in the toilet okay someone pooped in the toilet didn't flush no big deal but blood everywhere and the door ajar it seems like that would add it up but I'll get more to that later. Um, so then she gets creeped out and she leaves and she runs to Raphael. Uh, they both return to the house and he immediately sees a big mess in the house as if there was a break in or some sort of scuffle. And he was surprised that Amanda didn't react and, and instead just took a shower. So he pointed out that he thought it was weird that Amanda didn't do anything. So they decide to try Meredith's room because Meredith, the roommate, Meredith Kircher, the English exchange student, abandoned roommate, her, her bedroom door was closed. And so they try Meredith's room. They knock on the door. There's no answer. Raphael tries to break the door down. Uh, he can't break the door down. And so then Raphael calls the police and they send the police And two officers arrive, and reportedly these were postal police officers who usually only investigate postal crimes, not murder investigations. I don't know if that's a factor, but I don't even know if that's true, but I read that somewhere. The police officers entered the apartment to investigate. They kicked down the door to Meredith's room, and inside they found Meredith's, Meredith's body on the floor, dead, covered in a duvet, that was soaked in blood and then they call for more backup and a ton of police arrive just tons of police and investigators and all and the media arrives and you know as the story comes out the public starts to question what's happening and the prosecutors and the investigators start start asking all these questions they start saying like you know why did um Amanda leave the house without checking with Meredith. I mean, if she walks in the house, door jar, you know, multiple places with blood on it, poop in the, in the, in the toilet. Why doesn't she just knock on Meredith's door? Why does she just bolt? Okay. So that's, you know, one question. So all this is like trying to point at the fact, you know, that a lot of people thought that Amanda did it because of the way that she reacted in this situation. Um, you know, why did she take a shower? How did she not notice that the house was in disarray when Raphael totally noticed it? How could she shower with blood in the bathroom? And why would the poop cause you fear when the blood didn't? And at first I had the same questions as I was watching the documentary. I was like, what, you know, what's going on here? But after getting to know her and after seeing the pictures of the blood, I I think she was just naive, immature, Young, and she wasn't used to paying attention to stuff like that. I think she just sort of comes across as kind of an oblivious person, honestly. Not stupid, but just not very worldly, you know? If you come from a totally protected West Seattle, you know, uh, private school world, and you see a little bit of blood in the bathroom. Uh, my guess is, is you're just going to think, well, I'm, I'm sure there's a logical explanation for that, and so, or, or even it's not my problem. You know, when you're young, you, you don't tend to look for reasons to take action. You know, you just, you just see, oh, there's, I notice blood. Okay, moving on in life. As you grow up and mature, and you see blood, you take on the responsibility for finding out what happens, and so I think. She was just immature, and she's in a foreign country. She just moved there. She has no idea what's happening, and I I could absolutely see her not really putting the things together because now we all know that Meredith was dead in the room next to this bathroom or near this bathroom in this house, and so it all makes sense to us because we know, but it just just imagine yourself, right? You live with a bunch of other people that are coming in and out of your house. Um, I mean, I don't know how many people lived in the house, but you know, you're in college, people leave the door ajar sometimes. And if it's nice out, you know, just, I don't know, it's the middle of the day, no big deal. You walk in, you you see a little bit of blood in the sink, you know, a l- couple drops. Okay. No big deal there. People, you know, get cut sometimes. You see a little bit more blood on the bath mat. Okay, I mean, does your brain go to "there's a there's been a bloody murder in in my house"? No, of course not. You're if this happened to you, unless you have some kind of weird radar when it comes to murder, my guess is you just think, "Oh, there's someone cut themselves," and then you see more blood. And you're like, "Wow, someone cut themselves pretty bad," <laughs> and I'm sure someone will tell me that story someday. I don't know. Um, also, you know, she could have been groggy, and uh, you know, who knows? I but it's definitely not the sort of slam dunk indication of, of guilty of guilt to me, the way that a lot of people were saying it and the way a lot of people still say it. Okay. So the police arrive and they investigate and they find signs that Meredith, the English exchange student who was murdered, that Meredith, she was held down and she had this deep cut in her throat You know, just there's a lot of things about this case that remind me of the O.J. Simpson case, actually. So I don't think it was as deep as the O.J. Simpson case, but it was it was very deep. And the body was covered with a duvet. So someone killed Meredith and then they took the the blanket from the bed next to her and just put it over her. And there was lots of blood everywhere. And she was semi-naked. They also reported she had little nicks in her chin from the knife as if someone had been taunting her, you know, putting the knife up to her chin and saying, you know, don't say anything or, you know, whatever, or maybe even torturing her. I don't know. The police immediately started to think of Amanda as a suspect because they thought that she was acting inappropriate, but Honestly, I couldn't see that because they have, for whatever reason, they have video footage of her hanging around the um, home right after the murder as the police are there. I think the police arrived then either a police person is videoing or the media is videoing or something. And I don't know, she didn't seem quote unquote inappropriate. So, and, and, and and I just want to, put this into context because I think the little bit I did know about this case, I thought that, uh, Amanda and Meredith were like pretty close friends, but they had only been lit. They'd only known each other for a few weeks. And so they really barely knew each other, honestly. Uh, okay. So a media circus begins immediately. There's this weird video footage that starts to show up in the media. Again, taken by the police, can't tell. Amanda and Raphael are hanging around outside as the police are inside Amanda's house doing the investigation. And Amanda looks sad and she looks scared, but they're both very, very close. You know, they're they're like face to face. And they're comforting each other, and they're kissing and they they if you looked if you didn't know the context, you would think that they were making out. You would think they were having this romantic moment, and they were making out. but you look a little closer and you see that Amanda looks kind of scared, and Raphael looks like he's taking care of her <clears throat> because you know to them they're like whoa there's this murder just happened in my house, and this is crazy, and at the same time they're this immature um you know traumatized young couple that have just completely fallen head, head over heels in love with each other and so they do what they do in all cases <laughs> and regardless of what they're doing and they decide to turn it into an affectionate moment also uh, again, when you look at this video footage, just without understanding the context, it looks as though a man, Amanda's acting kind of weird. I mean, why would you be making out, essentially, with your boyfriend? They're not making out, but it kind of looks like that. Why would you be making out with your boyfriend directly after learning that your, um, your roommate was just brutally murdered? I mean, that just seems like weird behavior. Well, Amanda, at this point, she's all alone. Her family is halfway across the world, and... Her, her one friend Meredith is dead and so she is looking to the one person she can really depend on that's physically there which is this boy she's fallen deeply in love with and and so they're embracing each other trying to hold on but of course in in the media's eyes she was uh, obviously guilty because who would kiss her boyfriend directly after the murder of, of your of your roommate I also want to just pause and point out that in the documentary interviews that happened, you know, I'm guessing this year, all the way back to video footage of, of her in high school and then video, just all the different video footage of her, regardless of context, she has a kind of weird looking face. Not that she's ugly, but she has a kind of, she always has kind of a weird expression on her face. And I think that actually hurt her in a lot of ways because she has a kind of odd way of expressing herself. And some people are actually saying they think she's autistic because of the way she comes across, but that's just silly. I think she's just quirky. And I think she, I think she's a little unsure of herself. I think she, she seems, and I don't know, cause I'm not talking to her, but from a lot of the video footage, regardless of the, of what emotional state she's in, whether she's sad or happy or just talking or, If she's uh, celebrating some legal victory, she always seemed to have kind of a weird expression to her that that feels like a little creepy. And I don't know if it's just me reading into it or or whatnot, but she just kind of has a weird expression. Let's just put it that way. And whenever Raphael, because there's a lot of similar uh, footage of Raphael, and he's in similar contexts, like in the legal situation and these interviews. Raphael doesn't have that that sort of creep factor at all when he's talking, you just feel like you're talking to a regular person but there's some there's just something a little off about amanda now that does not mean that she's guilty of brutally murdering her roommate for no reason it just it just i think it's a factor in the way that the media react in the way that the public reacted to her okay so incidentally, they show some footage of later. So I don't know how long later, maybe even a couple of years or something. Amanda Knox is being interviewed on 2020 by Diane Sawyer, the famous Diane Sawyer of 2020. And Diane Sawyer is saying, quote, you can see this does not look like grief. It does not read as grief. And then Amanda replies, I think everyone's reaction to something horrible is different. I'm writing a book right now about grief and I give a lot of lectures on grief these days. And this is just yet another example of how whenever there's a high profile murder, there is often this assumption that there's this right way to react after, after loss or after trauma. And if you don't, present that right way of reaction, then it's presumed that the only reason why you didn't do the right response is because you're guilty of the murder yourself. And there's tons of examples of people being convicted, basically based on that, based on the fact that people don't understand the grief reaction, they have a very narrow vision of what is, quote, unquote, the right way to grieve or something. And if you don't do it, then it's because you're guilty of actually murdering the person or you're some kind of cold-hearted person. And so uh, Amanda was guilty, or not guilty, she was a victim of that kind of ridiculousness. Okay, so then the investigation begins. And immediately it's clear that the cops and the prosecutor and the police and the, the government are terrified of looking like fools in the media. Apparently there was some sort of high profile uh, legal case just a few years earlier, five or so years earlier that the police in this town in Italy were humiliated over. I think I remember, I read that somewhere. And so not only are, are they on the heels of that whore, you know, humiliating uh, situation, but, there's just, for whatever reason, just tons of media attention on this situation. And so they're terrified of looking like fools. But, you know, these are small town uh, prosecutors and stuff. They don't have the, you know, the big city uh, resources. Okay. And this is a major element in all that is about to happen to the story. If If there wasn't the media attention my guess is his story would have gone a very different way. Or if um, there wasn't so much pressure from the community to find someone right away, that this whole story, my guess would be completely different, but there was a lot of pressure and the police, uh, even during a press conference publicly, the police chief talked about how there was a ton of pressure from the media putting Um, was being put on them to solve the case right away. So throughout the documentary, they keep interviewing this one prosecutor. And um, I'm going to be talking about a lot of things he said, because he's uh, seen perhaps as one of the villains of the situation, because this prosecutor uh, seemingly had um, targeted Amanda for some weird reason, and then just decided to, make the case that Amanda did it when there was a lot of evidence in that direction. But anyway, so in the documentary, he, he says, well, female murderers tend to cover their victims after a murder. A man would never think to do this. So he, you know, he comes into the house and he sees that the Meredith was covered by this duvet, by this blanket from the bed. And the prosecutor immediately thinks, Oh, Clearly, this must be a female murderer because men would never do this. Right off the bat, you just have to... Now, I'm not a prosecutor. I'm not an investigator. But I have to imagine that that statement has to be pretty stupid to anyone who knows anything about, you know, crime. Uh, I mean, maybe there's a there's a tendency for f- women to do that more than men. I don't know. But I can't imagine just looking at a blanket Covering the body of a dead person and going, oh, we have a female, we have a female assailant here clearly, because men would never do that. That's just you know, men don't do that. It just seems like the a sign of of amateurism or stupidity or I don't know what, but just something was wrong there. Um, the prosecutor and the investigators they uh, they quickly conclude that this was a staged break-in, that there was no evidence of anyone climbing the walls to get in the house, that someone must have been let in the house and nothing was stolen. So um, so the little evidence of a break-in that there was, it must have been staged. So they ask Amanda to come to the home and answer some questions. They want to uh, find out about the, the knives and this sort of thing. And, Amanda says that as they're questioning her about the death of Meredith, they, I think they told her that Meredith had her throat cut very severely by a knife. And it sort of hit home with Amanda what had really happened to this person. And she said she became, quote-unquote, hysterical. And the prosecutor, watching Amanda have this emotional breakdown, was convinced that this emotional breakdown was evidence of, of Amanda remembering the murder. And again, <laughs> I just want to point this out. So you ask this young foreigner some questions and you reveal to her that her roommate has been brutally murdered and you start giving her some details and then this person proceeds to cry uncontrollably. Uh, Why would you assume that means that she's guilty of having committed the murder? It it just, it's, it just always boggles me. One, the way that police act sometimes, you know, with their conclusions is just like they, they, they're just looking for any excuse to support their narrative about a certain thing. And uh, it's just bizarre. And then again, this sort of grief uh, myth about, so, so, Earlier, if she doesn't have an emotional reaction, she's guilty. And here she does have an emotional reaction, so she's also guilty. It just it, it blows me away, the way that people use myths about grief to harm other other people. Um, and that this is a major theme in the book that I'm writing, actually, which I hope one day to be done with. I've been writing it for two years, I think. Okay, so then they pull in Raphael to... To question him. They just want to get some questions. And Amanda accompanies Raphael to the uh, police station because she's being supportive of her boyfriend. And they mess with Raphael's young mind. So you know how I'm describing Amanda as being this young, naive, not worldly, not mature person? Well, Raphael is exactly the same. He seems... Extreme, he seems perhaps even more naive, even though he's it's his country, he's an Italian guy, but he's he seems extremely innocent and kind and nice and timid. And so the police start interrogating him and they start to and they're convinced that Raphael and Amanda were involved in this murder. And again, remember, the police are under a lot of pressure to find someone, and so they start kind of messing with Raphael's mind. And they start lying to him about, you know, Amanda this, and what do you know about her? And maybe she did it, and, and we have evidence that, you know, blah, blah, blah. And so Raphael starts to, uh, under pressure, starts to kind of distance himself a little bit from Amanda. So then, for some strange reason, which I'll get into more later when I talk about false confessions, Raphael tells the police that Amanda was not at his house that night. Raphael says, well, actually Amanda didn't arrive to my house until 1am. So she could have been at home murdering Meredith. And so the alibi doesn't make sense because the police, if they're going to make Amanda and Raphael guilty, they have to somehow eliminate the alibi that, that they are saying that they were at Raphael's place. So they, they, Uh, immediately grab Amanda and pull her into this different room. And Amanda's like, what's going on here? Why am I being interrogated? I just came here down here to support support my boyfriend. At this point, she has no idea that she's being, that she's a suspect because she's thinking, why would I be a suspect? This is, you know, and so they tell Amanda, the police, they tell Amanda that Raphael has turned on her and is telling the police, the quote unquote truth that she murdered Meredith and didn't arrive at Raphael's till 1am. And so at this point, she's still thinking that she can convince them of the truth, which is, you know, in her mind that she's innocent. And so she hands over her cell phone. She just says, look, let me give you my cell phone. I, I You can look through all my texts. You can look at all my phone calls and and you can see that my story lines up with everything. And, they find this one uh, text message from her boss, Patrick. As, and remember, he was he texted her and said, "You don't. I don't need you to come in to work today because uh, I just don't need you to come in. So don't come in." And so they start laying into her, and they, they get aggressive. They interrogate her for uh, one report said something at fourteen hours. Another report said. A number of days but anyway 14 hours plus they start hitting her in the back of the head and saying you know tell us the truth and, you know you got to remember what happened and we don't believe your story they don't give her food they don't give her water they don't let her go to the bathroom she asks for a lawyer they say no that's only going to hurt you we're not going to let you talk to a lawyer and you know they're being aggressive they're in her face and they're saying um you know, did was Patrick involved in this? And why were you texting Patrick? And she's like, I was texting Patrick because he's my boss, and he said I shouldn't come in. And they're and they're saying it must have been you. You must have did it, and your boyfriend Raphael. And you know, you did it. You must have done it. And then she says that she broke. She told a story that Patrick, her boss, who just happens to be black, by the way, Patrick. Uh, she tells a story that her boss, Patrick killed Meredith while Amanda watched. So she was there with Patrick as Patrick killed Meredith. And I think she might've said Raphael was there too. So Patrick, Raphael and Amanda are all charged with the murder of Meredith and they're all detained or incarcerated or something. So then the real initial media circus begins and Either the investigators leak information or the investigators just overtly start telling the press uh, certain details. And the press start, uh, you know, publishing. And the documentary really describes this process very well, I think. But the press really goes with it. You know, they really run with the information and they say, oh, Meredith, it's not only just this murder of this foreign person. In Italy, this English woman in in Italy. But there was this, uh, there was a sex orgy, uh, some sort of sex orgy thing that was going on. And this is where I'm like, where do they, there was no evidence of that. So it's like, what's, I mean, she was naked. So I guess perhaps she was raped, but anyway, so they start piecing, you know, they're like, okay, we got a half naked dead girl. We've got a bloody bra that was off of her. We've got this American woman. We've got this Italian boyfriend, and we've got this uh, bar owner, Patrick. And I can't remember what country he's from, but he's from some other country other than Italy. And the it's you know they're saying it's some sort of sex game gone wrong, or it's it was sex torture involving. Uh, all the you know like a, some sort of cult ritual sex killing <laughs> something and the media uh, publishes in a documentary there's all these um, interviews with one of the most uh, notorious journalists on the case nick pisa pisa or pisa nick he's an english guy i think seemingly he Wrote a lot of the most um, dominant speculative stories that were getting a lot of attention. Uh, You know, I think he was making up things like she was killed. Meredith was killed for refusing sex, and they started labeling her as a man eater. That Amanda, you know, came to Italy to, you know, enact her her terrible psychopathic ways. Nick Pisa or Pisa Googled. Amanda and Raphael and Nick found Amanda joking around with a Gatlin gun at a museum. Amanda if you Google it you can find it, but there's this picture of Amanda. I think she's at a she must be at a museum because she's behind a Gatlin gun or some sort of old fashioned machine gun. And Amanda has this face like like, you know, she's shooting the gun and she's like, yay, you know, she's just a kid and she's at a museum. And there's this funny looking gun and she's making this face, but they published this as like, Oh my God, look at this crazy, you know, American girl with who takes glee in killing people and look at her face as she's shooting this Gatlin gun. And I mean, it's just, I mean, one, when I watch this documentary, I'm like, my God, uh, has journalism just hit an all time low. Who are these people? And then the second thought I had is who are these people who read this shit? I mean, give me a break people like, uh, she's anyway. So then they, they also find a picture, Raphael, him, I think some sort of costume party. He's dressed up as a mummy and he just happens to have a knife in his hand. So of course they publish that as, you know, in the media, like, look at this killer and this mummy costume. and, (laughs) And Nick, the journalist, he says he just loved these pictures. He's like, "Oh my god, I can't believe I found these." Okay, and you know, if you can remember the times, we're talking about two thousand seven, two thousand eight, when it was the beginning of uh, that that phenomenon where you can investigate people online, right? Where um, and there's a lot. There's been a lot of famous, high profile cases like this where. Someone will, uh, like, who, there was that one mother whose children died or something. And then, just soon after the death of her kids, uh, there were pictures of her on Facebook or something, partying with her friends or something and dancing around and da da da. And so, this is right at the beginning of all that when people started Googling people and finding incriminating pictures. And so, uh, they were victims of that. Uh this Nick journalist guy, he's talking about how he was getting a lot of front pages, quote unquote, in different publications because he was he actually flew to this town in Italy and was there and writing about all this. And he also went to MySpace, this journalist, and you know, because this is back when people used MySpace and I think it was MySpace. And Amanda Knox's profile name is Foxy Noxy. Remember that name from her days of being a teenage soccer player? And Nick was just he just said I can't believe this. Her her MySpace name is Foxy Noxy. This is perfect. And so he published it and you know Foxy Noxy in in murderous sex orgy thing and the name Foxy Noxy stuck in around the world. In the different publications, they're referring to her as Foxy Noxy, which I just find to be just, just really gross. There's so much, there's so many gross things about the media and about the prosecution in this story. It's just really gross. I mean, I understand if you're like some kind of like sixth grader and you're some immature boob of some kind, but. You're, in a, you're a grown man. You're a grown person. You should have professionalism, or you should at least have some integrity or at least some worry about how this is coming across. It, it just boggles me the way that some people operate in their professional lives. But anyway. Uh, okay, so Patrick, remember him, the boss uh, of, uh, of Amanda's, the the bar owner, well, he quickly, he so he's being implicated as the main person who murdered Meredith, the English exchange student. Well, Patrick quickly provides an alibi because he was working that night. Remember, he texted a man and said, I don't, I don't need you to come in. He was working in the bar, and there's tons of customers who said, no, he was at the bar. We saw him. <laughs> During the time of the crime, he was working. So, he is quickly, uh, you know, f- freed, and so now they're just down to Amanda and and Raphael as the suspects, and they're still incarcerated. And so they, uh, the Italian government, they test her blood for some unknown reason, and I think maybe to get DNA samples, not sure, but they tell her that she has HIV. They find. Well, while we were doing just our normal test, we found out you are HIV positive. Maybe it's because you're such an American slut girl who's been having all this sex and you should feel bad about yourself. And, of course, Amanda freaks the fuck out. She's like, holy crap, I have HIV. I've been convicted. You know, I'm being accused of murder and and I also have HIV and I'm going to die. I mean, this is terrible. But as time passes it's revealed that the government Italian government was just playing tricks on her she does not have hiv so i just want to kind of pause here for a second they didn't really explain this all that well but they hinted at it that italy is catholic country and there is a lot of catholic i don't is italy entirely catholic i don't know but there's a lot of catholicism interwoven into the documentary, the prosecutor said he was Catholic. And they seem to be kind of hinting at, even in the people as they're being interviewed, that, you know, Catholicism has a very fantastical, has a lot of fantastical elements to it. Now, are all Catholics, uh, you know, the same? Absolutely not. There's millions of Catholics around the world and a lot of variation in how they think. But... If you look into Catholicism and its and its belief system, you know there's angels and demons and possessions and exorcisms and and you know saints and you know there's just there's a lot there's a pretty elaborate fantasy world. It's 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 like um, Lord of the Ringsy kind of you know, and there's a some of that in. I think uh, influencing how the prosecutor and the people of Italy were kind of looking at this there uh, because Amanda was seen as this nymphomaniac from America, there was a, I, there's a, there seemed to be a a sort of theme of she must be possessed by the devil because who else has sex with a bunch of people? Um, because that was the narrative, was that was that Amanda Knox was this nymphomaniac who was having sex, sex orgies in Italy and stuff, and was only there for a few weeks, but had had tons of sex orgies and blah, blah, blah. So she also kept a diary while she was in prison. Again, just either she was writing a diary hoping it would be leaked to the press, and so she was maybe trying to tell her story through a diary, I don't know. But I think more likely is the case is she was alone in prison, didn't have anyone to talk to, and so she just started writing, which, frankly, I could see myself doing if I was in that in those shoes. But again, the naivete that she could keep the diary secret because the diary was leaked to the press and the press got their hands on it. This Nick Pisa guy gets his hands on it and he starts publishing things from it. And the documentarians went the Netflix documentarian people, they ask Nick, the journalist, how did you get your hands on this diary? And Nick says, uh, we never reveal our sources. That would be, that's not good journalism. You don't reveal your sources. So it's okay to steal a, an innocent woman's, because at this point, she at least she's not convicted. Even if you think she did it, she's not convicted of it yet. Um, you, so not only are you stealing a woman's diary uh, and publishing it, like, that's fine for journalism. But to reveal your sources, ooh, that's that's bad journalism. Ugh, it's just so gross. And so he starts and other journalists start publishing uh, things from this diary and they start summarizing and saying that, that Amanda is perverted, quote-unquote, and that she had many lovers. They're saying, look at her diary and she talks about all the men she's had sex with and she's some sort of like, you know, she's she's out to have as much sex as she can with as many men as she can. She's some sort of crazed, nymphomaniac, murderer, sex orgy person, satanic, devilish person. Well, it turns out she had only had sex with seven men and that was in her diary. She talks about having sex with seven different guys. That's that's the extent to her satanic sexual nymphomaniac orgy life, just seven guys. And, you know, she's at this point, I don't know how old she is. 2021 or something. Presumably she had sex with a few guys in high school and a few more guys in college. And then you add Raphael to the num to that. And you got, you got seven dudes. So, um, so yeah, many lovers perverted sex orgy person. Which I'll get into more later on the sexism and all the strangeness of all of that. But anyway, so now the investigators start doing their job and they start looking for evidence to corroborate the accusation that Amanda and Raphael were the murders. And they they find this knife at Raphael's place. There's a knife at his house. They test it for DNA, and they find Amanda's DNA is on the handle. Well, this isn't so surprising. I mean, Amanda spends time at Raphael's place, uh, presumably cooking sometimes. And so having Amanda's DNA on the handle seems pretty normal. But Meredith's DNA was on the blade. So this is huge evidence at this point. So not only do you have Amanda's DNA on a knife that's at Raphael's place, but on the blade is Meredith's DNA. So how in the world is Meredith's DNA on a blade at Raphael's place unless that is the murder weapon and Amanda was the one that killed her. So it's pretty incriminating at that point. And now, you know, everyone is like, you know, totally convinced that Amanda is the murderer. They also find this bloody bra clasp so that the, the Meredith, when she died, there, next to her was the was her bra, and the bra clasp, you know, the clasp in the back was ripped off and was uh, not was a little bit away from the bra itself. And they found this bra clasp, and they tested it for RNA. And this is at the scene of the murder, and Raphael's DNA was on it. So we have a lot of DNA evidence now pointing at Raphael and Amanda as. Being there when, or you know, being the murderers, but the police are convinced that there's a third person. For some reason, there there's evidence that you know maybe there's there's other DNA they can't identify or fingerprints of some stuff. So they start investigating this guy named Rudy Gueda. He's from Ivory Coast. He was spending time in this Italian town, and they discover that. Rather recently he traveled to Germany, so directly after the murder, he mysteriously decides to travel to Germany and they look into his criminal history and he has a number of burglaries or at least one burglary or i don't know he's he's been convicted of burglary okay so then they somehow get an informant to call Rudy and have a conversation with him, like one of Rudy's friends or something, and they record this this Skype call, and it's all in the documentary. It's really fascinating, and Rudy says that he was with Meredith the night of the murder. So he's talking to this informant. He's like, "Yeah, I, w- I was with Meredith that night, the night she died. I was at Meredith's house, but um, and I was we were trying to have sex, but but." Um, we didn't have sex because neither one of us had a condom. So because we weren't going to have sex and we didn't have a condom, I decided to go to the bathroom. And that's when I took that poop in the toilet. So that poop in the toilet is Rudy's poop from Ivory coast. That's some, <laughs> that's his poop. So, so Rudy says, you know, am trying to have sex with Meredith. And, well, we don't have a condom. So I'm like, okay, no harm, no foul go to the bathroom, take a poop. (laughs) And after that, you know, as I'm pooping, I hear someone screaming outside. And so I came quickly out of the bathroom and then I saw this guy, but I didn't see his face because it was dark. And he ran out the front door and then I looked down at Meredith and I saw that her throat was cut and she was still alive. And so I embraced her and she embraced me back. And she got blood all over me and I was scared and I was completely covered in blood. And so I said, um, so I, you know, I ran cause I didn't know what to do. And then as he's talking to the, to the informant, he says, he, he says today, you know, as he's talking, you know, from Germany, he's like, I'm really scared about this and I'm going to kill myself. He says, I'm going to kill myself, he says. It's just so interesting. Similar to the OJ case, remember OJ in the white Bronco driving away from the scene uh, in the car chase and how he had a gun to his head and how how he wrote that that suicide letter when the police were converging upon him after he killed those two people, including his ex-wife. Uh, it it's it makes sense, but it's it's just interesting how when people feel the grip of the law coming after them, that they will often turn to suicide as a way out of it, you know? Anyway, so he also says, Rudy, in this recorded Skype call with the informant, he says, Amanda had nothing to do with this. She wasn't even there. So Rudy is he's been watching the news and he's like, Oh my God, they're accusing Amanda and Raphael of this murder. And on this phone call that he doesn't know is being recorded. He's like, and by the way, Amanda wasn't even there. I don't even know why they're, they're like, you know, pursuing her. So then he's arrested in Germany on an international arrest thing. And he's brought to Italy and his lawyer decides to quote unquote, fast track the trial. So, he decides to just sort of get it over and done with probably because everyone uh, he's worried. Prob- my guess is that he's worried that soon the ridiculousness of the case on Amanda and Raphael will, uh, you know, be revealed at some point. So he's like "I better bring Rudy to trial fast because, you know, while everyone is still convinced that Amanda and Raphael are the real killers and that maybe Rudy was just kind of there. Um, also, the evidence against Rudy was pretty strong. And so, because, because, so they test the crime scene and they find evidence of, of Rudy's fingerprints and DNA all over the place. Uh, so, in the room of the murder, there's, there's, you have Meredith's DNA everywhere and you have, and you have Rudy from the Ivory Coast. You have his DNA everywhere. And then you have this small little bra clasp with a little bit of Raphael's uh, DNA, and you don't have any DNA from um, Amanda in that room. Okay. So they go to trial, and even though Rudy originally on on this recorded Skype call said that Amanda wasn't there, I don't know why the police are pursuing her, he now says in court that he saw a silhouette of Amanda leaving the house right after the murder. And I just love this because it's just the perfect defense, and, and it it didn't work in the end, but it was it, it was a good call to kind of go with this because everyone was totally convinced that Amanda was some kind of crazed you know psychopath, and so to for Rudy to be like, "Look, I was just in the bathroom taking a poop, and when I came out, then this monster Amanda was there. you know it was it was a good try, but it didn't work, and Rudy from Ivory Coast was found guilty. And he gets 16 years in prison for his quote-unquote part in the murder. The part of this that's just so interesting is that Rudy received very little press coverage. There was no talk about Rudy's nymphomania or how many sex partners Rudy had or what kind of deviant, satanic thing Rudy was involved in. I mean, Rudy was convicted he was clearly there. He admitted he was there. He never said he wasn't there. I mean, even in court, he said, Yes, I was there. I saw this whole thing happen. His DNA was everywhere. And yet, nothing in the media about his sex life, nothing in the media about him being some sort of satanic person, nothing about his character, just nothing, you know? So I just want to point that out. Okay, so now Raphael and Amanda go to trial, and we're now at one and a half years after the murder. And by the way, that's one and a half years of Raphael and Amanda being in prison. And on the news, they're, ca- they're calling it the trial of the decade in Italy, similar to the OJ trial, right? And it's the trial of Foxy Noxy. And they're calling it a drug-fueled sex game gone wrong over and over and over again, a drug fueled sex game gone wrong or dead girl feared to be Knox's sex toy. <laughs> so they're, they're saying like Meredith was foxy Knox's sex toy. And it's just, you know, it's again, when you look at the evidence, it's like, where you get coming up with this shit? Another headline, Lucifer, like satanic, demonic, diabolical, a witch of deception, it's just all these, It just, again, humans are idiots. swear to God. Okay. Then the prosecution presents their story, and the prosecutor talks in the documentary about what he thinks happens. What he thinks happened. He thinks that Raphael and Amanda and Rudy are using drugs and drinking and just being bad people at their house, and the, at Amanda's house. And then, Ama- and then Meredith, the good girl, the good girl from England, she comes home and she looks at Amanda hanging out with this black guy from the Ivory coast, hanging out with this Italian guy and they're using all these drugs and they're doing sex things. And then Meredith comes home, this good little girl. And she says, Amanda, um, you're, you're a, you know, you're being a bad girl. So this is the whole narrative here is that Meredith somehow, um, was being a good person and was saying to Amanda, look, you shouldn't be a satanic um, <clears throat> sex crazed person. And then Amanda cannot tolerate that kind of criticism. So Amanda, be- because, so, so at this point, the narrative is that Amanda is some sort of powerful satanic ringleader who can put men under her spell. And so she has Raphael, the Italian boy and, Rudy, the Ivory Coast boy, she has these two boys under her spell. And because Meredith, the English prissy girl, has insulted Amanda, then Amanda tells Rudy and Raphael to punish Meredith for this by raping her. This is is what the prosecutor thought happened. (laughs) This is not some speculation by... Nick, the journalist, this is, this is the prosecutor, the Italian respected prosecutor. So Amanda tells Rudy and Raphael, you punish Meredith for insulting me and calling me a sex crazed person, and I want you to rape Meredith. And so Rudy and Raphael proceed to rape Meredith because they're under her spell. They'll do whatever they want. And they, they cut, you know, they, they torture her. And then Amanda gets a knife and kills her. Kills Meredith in cold blood. So this is this is the story. This is this is the story. And the verdict, uh, when the verdict was about to be announced, just like in the OJ trial back home in the states, there's tons of people on the streets. Everyone's on the edge of their seat. You know, everyone's listening to the radio, watching the TV the verdicts coming out, the verdicts coming out. And, and for the most part, it seems like the, you know, different from the OJ trial where in America you have like all the black people hoping that OJ is acquitted and all the white people hoping that OJ is, you know, found guilty in Italy. It seems like everyone wanted Amanda to be found guilty and she's found guilty. Raphael and Amanda are found guilty of the murder and they're sentenced to 26 years for Amanda and 25 years for Raphael because, you know, Raphael was just a sex puppet for Amanda. So he gets one less year. So a year and a half, you know, fast forward another year or so. So this is three years after the murder and they go to an appeal. They start the appeal process again, three years of being in prison by this point. They reevaluate the DNA evidence on the knife and on the bra clasp and long story short, essentially, they, when experts from the big city come in and start looking at the practices that the police were using to investigate, and to you know, they found that there were all sorts of contaminations to the DNA. The bra clasp could have been touched. They even have a video of it being touched. You know. And so they, they completely destroy all the DNA evidence. And it wasn't like the OJ trial where it's just like um, kind of dubious arguments. It The arguments against the DNA was actually pretty compelling. And so, so they destroy the DNA evidence. And again, more media circus starts to, you know, starts to happen now. Now the narrative in the States is that Italy botched the investigation and they there's this really awesome clip in the documentary of someone interviewing Trump Donald Trump and Trump is saying that the president should get involved so the president this at this point is Barack Obama and so Trump is saying you know the president should get involved and we should we should boycott Italy now because of this terrible uh this terrible thing that they are doing so <laughs> it's just funny that You know, given today's landscape, it's like you have Trump saying that. Anyway. All right. So the decision comes down from the appeals court four years after the murder now. So the appeal took about a year. And again, the Italians are waiting outside and saying, we hope that the appeals court upholds the guilty conviction. But Raphael and Amanda are acquitted. And the Italians are angry. And there's mobs of people saying that we're going to take this to the next level, and we're going to make sure that Amanda is convicted. And it just seems so strange that they're taking it also personally, honestly. It, it's, it's interesting when these things happen, how people who are totally uninvolved in the murder, you know, they're not a family member, they they're just taking this so personally. And um, I just find that fascinating. It reminds me of the Chamberlain case in Australia, in the think early 80s you know dingo ate my baby or dingo killed my baby all that you know that joke it's from an actual case in which a dingo literally ate a baby in um, in australia the mother her name was is linda Cham- Linda chamberlain and this case with a man in ox just reminds me a lot of that in in the way that I, it, all of australia was convinced that lindy Chamberlain was was guilty because her face didn't look right. She didn't show enough grief and I don't know. Anyway, okay. And Meredith's family, incidentally, was also angry because Meredith's family was convinced that Amanda and Raphael had done it as well. Okay, so Amanda and Raphael are released. Amanda returns to Seattle. I seem to remember news stories, local news, like Amanda Knox returns to Seattle after her four years of being in prison in Italy for being wrongly accused of murdering this innocent, you know, girl from, from England. And they show footage of a documentary of the paparazzi following Amanda around in Seattle, which just looks really gross too. It's like they're, they're essentially trying to provoke her into giving good footage. She's, she's just keeping her head down. She's like, please don't bother me. Please leave me alone. And they're like, welcome back. Welcome back, Amanda. Welcome back to Seattle. Amanda. How do you like, how do you like Seattle, Amanda? Welcome back, Amanda. You know, that sort of paparazzi bullshit talk. It just, if I was ever famous enough to, you know, have paparazzi follow me around, I guarantee you I'd be one of those people that would punch the fucking lights out of these people. It's like, shut the fuck up. (laughs) I know that's the wrong thing to do. You're not supposed to pump the, you're not supposed to punch the paparazzi. That's exactly what they want. But my God, it's, it is, uh, it is very annoying. Okay, so, uh, okay, then there's another court decision. This is six years after the murder, but now Amanda and Raphael are, you know, living their lives. And there's another court in in Italy that that reverses the reversal and finds them guilty again. And they focused on circumstantial evidence, including Amanda's behavior, you know. So then... There's a fourth trial. Now, this is the Supreme Court, which is the highest court, right? This is eight years after the murder, and they're acquitted. So they were found guilty, then they were acquitted, then they were found guilty, then they were acquitted again. The Supreme Court, in their ruling of upholding the appeal's acquittal, found, quote-unquote, stunning flaws in the investigation. The court also said that the The media circus caused the police to to frantically search for a murderer. The court also said that there was no evidence, no biological evidence that linked Amanda and Raphael to the murder. The court also said that the evidence clearly points to Rudy as the sole uh, criminal involved in the situation. So the Supreme Court in Italy really came through, it seems, if you believe that Amanda and Raphael didn't do it. Okay. So where are they now? Well, the prosecutor, the, uh, the, you know, the one who there the, so there's two villains of the story or really three villains. I guess you have Rudy, the murderer, he's a villain. You have the prosecutor and you have the journalist, Nick uh, Pisa. So the prosecutor, where is he now? Well, he's been promoted. He is, uh, you know, moving on up the ladder. Uh, Rudy is still in prison, but he's soon to you know, start getting released for a good time. Raphael is running a computer company in Italy, and he's also a crime expert on Italian TV, which I find to be funny. Occasionally, he's interviewed as a crime expert. Where is Amanda? Well, in the documentary, they show her living in a small house in the woods. They say it's Seattle, but it doesn't look like Seattle to me. It looks like outside of Seattle. They show her drinking wine, and I think she had at least three cats living in her house. <laughs> Um, which you know I enjoy as a cat lover um, <clears throat> they uh said that she started working as an occasional freelance writer for the West Seattle Herald, which sounds like a you know awesome sort of newspaper, but it I've never read it I think it's a I think it's just one of those sort of uh, neighborhood newspapers that you get, you know what I mean those like little thin newspapers you get I think the West Seattle Herald maybe I'm wrong, but Anyway, she was occasionally a freelance writer for the West Seattle Herald. She finished her degree at the University of Washington. She wrote a book, a best-selling book, about her experience, which was released in 2015. And Amanda advocates for the Innocence Project, which advocates for people who have been wrong, wrongfully imprisoned. And she has been recently engaged to this dude in New York City, dude named Colin Sutherland. Uh, who was a friend she has known since middle school, back in Seattle. Amanda's family reportedly went into a huge amount of debt from paying all the legal fees, and the Amanda's family apparently um, is like bankrupt or something because they owe so much money. And the proceeds from Amanda's book that she sold a lot of copies of are going toward a lot of those legal fees. So it doesn't seem like Amanda made any money from the book. It's mainly just paying off the debt from this whole, you know, process, which is just another sort of tragedy. If if you believe that Amanda was innocent, I mean just think about the hundreds of thousands of dollars that they had to, you know, go into debt to uh, sustain an eight-year legal battle. It's just crazy. Okay. So here's how I see it. Here's here's my uh, take on 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 what happened. You have this you have this very naive girl from Seattle, and she's in a foreign country, and she just happens to be roommates with a woman who was brutally murdered by this by this dude from the Ivory Coast. And Amanda, she's like swept up in the media and police frenzy. And she gets convicted and spends three years in prison. And the entire country of Italy and much of the world still thinks that she's a demented satanic sex psychopath and her life is forever altered just because she was, she just happened to be the roommate of this person who was brutally murdered. But I think most Americans incidentally think she's innocent I think most Seattleites actually think she's innocent, but, but just imagine knowing that a good number of people, particularly in Italy, around the world, think that you're this demented satanic sex murderer and that you got away with it, you know, the way that OJ, if you've seen the OJ documentary, you know, OJ after being acquitted, his life didn't return to normal there was a good amount of people who were convinced he was a terrible murderer and would say that to his face. It's going to take a toll. And it, it just makes you wonder what would have happened if she didn't confess? What would have happened if she didn't go to Raphael's house? tonight? I mean, what, what would have happened if she stayed home? Would she be murdered too? What would have happened if she had just called the police as soon as she saw blood on the sink maybe the police wouldn't have targeted her as a suspect what if she never came home that day and someone else found the body and and then that other person would have been the the suspect it's just interesting i'm guessing she asks herself these questions or have asses okay so i want to get to the themes i want to do just some sort of armchair so you know sociology here so when we look at the the media again just how ugly the media was it's just really gross the way that the writers spun a story out of nothing to get people to pay attention and in the documentary it's just fascinating the way this nick piece guy he he's he said that he's like look you know i'm not to blame for this whole thing because you know at the very end it's like oh it looks like amanda was innocent the whole time and even though i was writing all these terrible stories about her oh it sounds like she's innocent and he's like but you know I'm I'm not to blame for the fact that Amanda was uh, convicted of, of murder here. And he says, <clears throat> I think now looking back, some of the information that came out was just crazy. It was just completely made up. But hey, what are we supposed to do? We are journalists and we are reporting what we are being told. It's not as if I can say, hold on a minute. I just want to double check that and then and then let my rival get in there before me. And hey, I've lost the scoop, unquote. So he's really being blasted about this on the internet right now because he's basically saying you should never double check a story that you're getting. You should just print every single thing you hear <laughs> as if it's truth. And, you know, all because you're trying to beat the next journalist to the punch. And a lot of journalist students, uh, journalist majors are going to be reading this guy's um, account and uh, mulling over it. And I really hope that people learn from this guy's mistakes. At least I hope they're mistakes. I hope that journalists see this as mistakes. I mean, journalism is supposed to be uh, trustworthy on some level. That is something I always grew up with anyway. You're supposed to at least try to discover the truth. You're not supposed to try to get clicks on the internet, you know? Anyway. Okay. So one theme is just media. This story just has a huge theme of media and just a lot of, a lot of re- revealing of the way the media and society operates regarding that. Another theme is sex and murder. You know, we love stories about sex and violence. There was actually points when they were talking about the speculation of the way Amanda had this sex orgy and stuff—it reminded me of Twin Peaks. If it, I'm a huge fan of Twin Peaks, but if you've watched Twin Peaks and the movies that followed, it reminded me of Laura Palmer. The the Amanda Knox character reminded me a lot of the Laura Palmer character. Anyway, another theme here is, and I just got goosebumps thinking about Twin Peaks. That God, that show used to freak me out. Okay. Another theme here is moralism against women having sex. She was uh, labeled this sex crazed American nymphomaniac orgy person. And she only had seven partners. You know, people just love to, but even if she had 50 partners, what's the fucking difference? (laughs) People can have sex with who they want to have sex with. Stop the fucking moralizing. And again, no one was speculating about Raphael's past partners. No one was speculating speculating about Rudy's the actual murderers' past sex life. I mean, he's the one who raped Meredith and killed her. So the, all this attention on on Meredith's sex life and how depraved she is, and then uh, telling her she has HIV it's just uh, it's just terrible. You know, people they like to project and displace a lot of their own conflicts regarding sex onto other people. And I think Amanda became this perfect screen upon which to project. Another theme here is just sexual fetishism, particularly the prosecutor, his wild speculations uh, and the wild speculations written in the media. They read like some sort of sick penthouse forum story the 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 detail that uh, that they went into of telling the story about how she was this sexy witch that would put sex spells on these boys and how she had this sex ritual killing and it's just it's bizarre given that there was no evidence of that <laughs> I mean it's just so strange to to see people with just the tiniest little bit of Circumstantial evidence expand that into this elaborate story about sex and murder and ritual and Satan. It's just like, where is your head? Do you know, you just have to wonder, like, what's going on in your mind at night? You know, okay. The other theme here is our love of the charming psychopath. We love stories of the charming psychopathic killer. You know, the Ted Bundy's of the world. How can such an innocent-looking girl do such a thing? You know, it entices people. Um, Sexism is actually a pretty major theme that I want to go into for a second. You know, as I've been saying, why was Amanda targeted in the media in particular, and Raphael and Rudy seem to be not targeted? I mean, Rudy, again, was clearly the one who committed the crimes and raped Meredith. Why wasn't Rudy's sexuality targeted? Well, because Rudy is a man and Amanda is a woman and who controls the media and who controls the police system men do. And, you know, there's this, there's a, there's a certain brand of sexism and a certain brand of, um, religion, frankly, that paints women as being evil. You know, uh, Eve, was the one who, if, if it wasn't for Eve and her weak uh, personality, we would all still be living Eden is, is the idea. I, I re, I'm not making fun of Christians. I, I've heard people say that before. I've heard people say that women, according to the Bible, are the weaker sex, and the story of Adam and Eve actually demonstrate that. And so there's, there's, there's a certain amount of sexism that I can detect as a theme throughout this entire story. That is just, again, really gross. Another theme that I've been talking about is grief. This lack of visible grief, or the visible grief showing guilt, or the lack of grief showing guilt, again, just like the Lindy Chamberlain case. Another theme here that I haven't talked about yet is the ugly American theme. It's hard for me to know, and I'm guessing there are pieces in the media about this, but. I was just wondering, you know, how many Italians when they first heard this story was like, oh yeah, of of course this American did it. Because Americans are terrible people. And me, as an American, I could say that we can be very terrible people sometimes. (laughs) As tourists. You know, we think we're better than other people. We treat everything like it's our own playground. I mean, I'm generalizing, of course. Most Americans are nice, but Many Americans are not – you know, tourists can just be – they just don't know the rules, you know. In my neck of the woods, you'll see people from China being – acting weird, you know, being pushy or something. And and so people will start saying, oh, Chinese people are pushy and rude. And it's just like, no, you know, it's just when you're a tourist, you might not understand the rules, and the rules might be different back – you know, so – Anyway, it just makes you wonder, like, how many Italians were influenced to think Amanda was guilty by a, a, a sort of, um, you know, prejudice against Americans. It's, I don't know. Um, also, at the time, 2007, 2008, Bush was president. George W. was president. And I don't know if people remember this, but people hated that guy, particularly other Countries like Italy, they hated that guy. They, you know, you would go to a, you would go to another country in, you know, two thousand seven, and one of the first things that people would bring up is like, oh, George Bush is your president. Yeah, what a piece of work. They, did you vote for him? Because my God, that guy is just, you know, this isn't the 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 height of all the terrible wars in the Middle East that America was involved in, and just all the bad press around that. And I remember. You know, if if you said you're American, instantly it was like, oh George Bush, you know. Anyway. So it just makes you wonder like if that was that a factor? I don't know. Maybe I'm stretching. And the last theme that I was seeing in the media was American elitism against Italy. You know, many Americans think the rest of the world is fucked. You know, when this Case came out and the DNA started being overturned. A lot of Americans were like, "Oh my God, Italy and their terrible judicial system and their terrible prosecutors and their terrible legal system. They're they're so backward over there." But you know, there are investigations in the United States uh, that are just as bad, if not worse, than this case. So, you know, just see making a murderer in these kinds of documentaries. It, it's not just an Italy thing. <laughs> okay. So who can we blame? Well, I think we can blame for the injustice that happened. Because, again, if you believe that Amanda and Raphael are innocent, which I'm 99.9% sure that they were, who who do we blame for this, for this injustice? Well, I think you can blame the media. Um, I think you can blame the way that the media was ugly and just hungry for, you know, Uh, salacious stories and just making up terrible things and spitting lies out of nothing and printing things before they're corroborated. And that influences the legal system. I mean, if if you're a jury or you're a judge or you're a prosecutor, you're a cop or, you know, you get influenced, you can't not be influenced by that. And so I think the media can be blamed. Also, I think the police can be blamed, the prosecutors. They clearly fucked this up. I mean, when you see this documentary, you're just like, my God, the shoddy police work. It's always amazing to me. Whenever I see these investigations happen, uh, they I always just see tons of cops just trouncing around the crime scene. And I'm just thinking, is that the way you're supposed to do it? Because to me, it would seem, and I'm—I I am far removed from this profession. But I would think that as soon as you have a crime scene, you rope it off and you don't let a single person in there except for maybe one person. And then that one person goes in there and does a methodical search for items to test for DNA. Because as soon as you start trouncing people around, because the whole thing about the DNA was like, oh, they have Raphael's DNA on the bra strap. Well, the... His, his DNA was likely on the doorknob because remember the door was locked. And so Raphael probably touched the doorknob to try to open it earlier that day. And so when the investigator uh, with gloves on his hands opens the door and he gets Raphael's um, DNA on his hand, on his rubber glove, and then he walks into the room and then he grabs the bra strap and then he places Raphael's DNA on the bra strap. So just things like that. It's just like, if I can think of that, then why can't the professionals think of that? <laughs> I don't know. The and so you can blame the media, I think you can blame the police, obviously, but you know, you can also blame the people. We should all know better than to pressure the police to come up with a quick conviction. We should actually just let the police do their job. The other thing is is uh, we really have to stop uh, just believing everything that the media gives to us. We really have to question these salacious stories. And we should stop clicking on bullshit. We should fight back against this sort of thing. The, the only reason why this shitty, ugly journalism exists is because it makes these people money. And the only reason why it makes the money is because we read it and we click on it. You know, we're, we're the dumbasses in this. We're the ones driving all the stupidity. Uh, famous patron Linden just emailed me this uh, article today and he was like, Oh boy, here's a, here's, here's a doozy. And it was in the daily mail and they published this story about how this uh, study. So, you know, this, this, this article that was talking about this research study that proved that couples who have more equality in the chores are more likely to divorce. Well, as a, marital therapist that sounded extremely suspicious to me. So I started to look into the study and I found that that was a completely false way of, of presenting the findings. And even the study had a lot of problems with it. And there's a lot more research saying that when there's equality in relationships, they last longer or they're at the very least they're, they're more satisfactory. Um, so anyway, Uh, okay. And and also just to stay on this equality thing a little bit, like the writer of the article, they're like, basically, it seems as though the author is saying, look, uh, equality is bad. You know, we, we shouldn't have, it's, you know, it's this, we should go back to our traditional values. Well, if equality is the problem, it's funny how the article never talks about, well, maybe men should do all the chores then. You know, that's not the conclusion. It's like, well, we should go back to the way it was before when women did all the chores. It's just interesting how it's never like, oh, we should. Well, if equality is the problem, then maybe men should do, do all the chores and women shouldn't. Anyway, so so when I think about all the evidence, and again, this is all from the Internet, so God knows. But here's my story. Here's my, here's my version of what I think happened the day of the the night of the crime. I think he he Rudy. I think he probably broke into the house intending to burglar the house, and he didn't know Meredith was there. And he kind of freaks out, and he subdues her, and then he freaks out and he rapes her, which is kind of a weird thing. But then he panics, thinking, "Oh boy, she knows who I am," and so he kills her. And then, because he's never murdered anyone before, and he didn't plan it, and he because you know, he didn't go over there thinking I'm going to murder anyone. He has no idea how to cover his tracks, and so he leaves his DNA everywhere, and he starts to panic even more, and he, he he goes to the bathroom to try to clean himself, and he you know drops the blood everywhere, and then he suddenly has this poop attack, and he actually talks about this, how he had a stomach ache from eating some kebab earlier that day, and so he had a poop attack, and so... So even though he had already raped and murdered this poor woman, he has this poop attack, which, you know, can happen under stress too. You can have poop attacks under, <laughs> under stress. So he goes to the bathroom and because he's panicking, he forgets to flush and then he flees the country. Soon after that, he goes to Germany, but he feels scared and he feels really guilty for what had happened. So he, he has to tell someone. And so when this informant, this friend of his calls him on Skype, he he tells him basically the entire story, except for the fact that, you know, he killed Meredith. So when you just look at, you know, Occam's razor perspective here, his DNA was everywhere. His fingerprints were everywhere. He admitted he was there that night and his first version of the story, he said, no one else was there except for this, this mysterious other man, which is, you know, a very convenient thing. Um, And, you know, you can imagine if you had killed someone and you knew that there was a ton of evidence implicating you, that a very convenient story is, oh, I, yes, I had sex with her, blah, blah, blah. I stepped out of the room for five seconds and boom, someone at that moment broke into the house, murdered her and ran away. And when I came out, it had already happened. You know, it's a very lame story to tell. So, Occam's razor, Rudy did it by himself in this in a typical way that this sort of thing happens so another possibility that I think perhaps happened a sort of close second is that he just got drunk and raped her and then he killed her in a panic and then he tried to stage a burglary and then he took a poop and then he ran in <laughs> random the whole poop thing is just this bizarre kind of element, but anyway so but when the police arrive the, the next day, they you know feeling all the pressure to immediately find someone to, to uh, implicate, they target the only suspects that they have available to them at the time. They only have two suspects they have Amanda and Raphael. They have no one else that are possible. They don't know about Rudy yet, and so they're just so they get them into the the police headquarters and they start interrogating them in their aggressive way that they know how to get people to confess. And Amanda and Raphael are kind of naive, weak-willed people and they easily roll over, Uh, but not easily, but you know, after 14 hours of interrogation, they start telling stories and they confess. Then they, because of shoddy police work involving DNA collection, they find actual DNA to back up these these confessions. So they announce to the public, "Look, we have the killers. We've we've done our job. We've we're awesome police officers. Look at us!" And everyone congratulates them, and the public feels safe again. But then, when Rudy shows up and his evidence showed up, the the police are already committed to convicting Amanda and Raphael. They have their confessions. They've come out publicly about this. They have the DNA evidence, but then they have this Rudy evidence coming up, and Rudy is saying. Amanda and Raphael weren't even there. And so so now the police are like, oh, maybe it's not Amanda and Raphael. Maybe it's this Rudy guy because it clearly looks like it's this Rudy guy. So instead of saying, okay, we're going to scrap the Raphael-Amanda hypothesis, let's go with this Rudy hypothesis because it clearly sounds like this is the better hypothesis. Instead of just scrapping your previous um you know, statements, you, because they don't want to look foolish, they just sort of incorporate Rudy into the story. You know, they just add a third person into this satanic sex orgy, even though Amanda didn't even really know who Rudy was. I, he, she had seen him a couple times in the neighborhood, but she didn't even know who he was. And then they say, well, how do we, how do we get three people who don't really know each other that well, um, you know, How do we get this couple, this couple that just fell in love, uh, involved with this random guy from Ivory Coast, you know, well, how do we get the three of these people involved in this murder? I mean, just to make any sense. Well, how about we make up a story about a bizarre satanic sex orgy thing to explain why all these people would do this sort of thing? So that's, that's how, that's what I think happened. Okay, so let's go into the false confessions, the research on false confessions, to most people and to me before i learned about this sort of stuff years ago it's bizarre to think about that someone would admit to committing a murder when they hadn't done it you know if if someone accused you of murdering of committing a murder you hadn't committed you would imagine that you would just keep telling the truth you would just say no i didn't do it and no matter how many times you ask me and no matter how many different ways you ask me, and no matter how loud you yell at me i 'm still going to tell you the truth, which is i didn 't kill that person i don 't know what i don't know what to tell you so it's if unless you 've been in that position or unless you know about the research it 's hard to imagine why someone would falsely admit to killing someone they hadn 't especially when when you confess, it's so horrible for you. It just means so many bad things are going to happen to you. It's like, why would you confess? It just seems so stupid, right? Okay. Well, let me talk about the history a little bit of the false confession research. Well, we have to go back to 1908 when Harvard psychology professor Munsterberg, professor Munsterberg from Harvard, Harvard in 1908, he wrote uh, in his book on the witness stand, about untrue confessions, so we have to go back over a hundred years to find uh, perhaps the first example of of discussion around confessions not being true. Which I found pretty surprising, given that um, you know confessions have been happening for eons, and that false confessions, you know, wasn't really a thing. But it makes total sense because. The powers that be are usually the government and the legal system, and you know what benefit do they get from talking about some of the confessions being false? You know they never benefit from that. So, so the so systems of oppression have been um, probably always on the side of saying no, a confession is always truthful. Don't even think that any confession would be false. So then, uh, even though uh, Münsterberg starts writing about these false confessions in 1908. Throughout the 20th century, there's not a lot of attention. Then in the 1960s, there start to be a little bit more attention in psychology on false confessions. You know, 1960s are when we start questioning authority, and also psychology starts to kind of blossom during this time. And so, for example, Zimbardo, the famous Zimbardo of the 1971 Stanford prison experiment, Zimbardo, uh, He is a psychology researcher from Stanford. In 1967, he published a social-psychological analysis of the way police interrogate people and uh, talked about false confessions in the first issue of Psychology Today. So isn't that interesting? You know, the magazine, the popular magazine, Psychology Today. Um, In 1967, Zimbardo wrote about false confessions. All right. In the 80s, a little bit more attention, and then up till today, even more attention. Okay, now, there are three types of, of, um, of false confessions in the literature. There's what they call voluntary, and then there's coerced compliant, and then there's coerced internalized. So three types of false confessions. The first one is voluntary. This is when the false confession is given voluntarily without any coercion. There's no pressure. For example, during the kidnapping of Charles Lindbergh's baby uh, in 1932 because the, the case was so famous and they're like, who kidnapped this famous Lindbergh baby who kidnapped? Well, apparently 200 people voluntarily uh, confessed to this crime because they wanted to be famous. (laughs) So these are what we call voluntary false confessions. People voluntarily confessing to crimes they didn't commit because they want to be famous. Okay. So that's the first one. That's a silly one. Then you have coerced compliant false confessions. And these are what Amanda and Raphael, what happened to them is you're essentially forced or in coerced and manipulated into complying with the wishes of the police. The police, the investigators are, are saying, look, all you have to do is confess and I'll, let, and I'll give you this cookie or I'll let you go to the bathroom or whatever. And then eventually the person gives in and like, okay, fine, yes, I did it, even though they didn't do it. Then the third type is coerced internalized. And this is uh, when you coerce someone into confessing, but it actually gets under the person's skin so much so that the person actually starts believing maybe I did do it The police seem totally convinced I did it, so maybe my memory is wrong. You know, you break someone's ego down far enough, and it doesn't take much to do that. People will start believing their own lies, uh, even even if it doesn't serve them. Okay, so what does the research show us? What does it tell us? Well, there is actually substantial empirical evidence that false confessions happen all the time. Not maybe most of the time, but that false confessions are happening in the legal system all the time. And it's been found that when later DNA evidence exonerates falsely convicted people, you know how, so someone will uh, be convicted of a crime, they'll go to prison. And then later on, they're like, Hey, we have this new thing called DNA evidence that we can actually test to see if these people actually did it. And when they use the DNA evidence similar to the making a murderer case, and they tested the DNA. They're like, "Oh, it actually wasn't that person." So we we convicted the wrong person, and then that person is is exonerated. Well, in thirty percent of those cases that have happened so far, th- there were false confessions so uh, involved that were contributing factors to the person being falsely convicted. So false confessions are are, are frequent. They're they're not a, a small anomaly in the criminal. Um, system. And uh, so part part of what the problem here is the way that police are trained and the way that they think. And an influence on this can be found in a book that police will often use to train their interrogators, reportedly, called Criminal Interrogations and and Confessions. It was originally published in 1962. It's a manual on how to interrogate people. Uh, it's in its fifth edition in 2013. Police in this book are trained to use a highly confrontational accusational process. You know, we all know that. We've seen it in the movies. And uh, by the way, research has found that this form of interrogation is more likely to, pr- to produce defensive behavior in the, in the suspect which has been shown by research to make investigators more convinced of their guilt, which makes the person, which makes the police more aggressive and so on. So let me explain this because it's kind of confusing. So, you know, you train investigators to be aggressive, okay? So the police go into the interrogation room and they're very aggressive. Well, research shows that when you're aggressive with an innocent suspect, the innocent suspect starts to get defensive, it starts to be like fuck you why are you being such a dick i didn't do anything well when the suspect is defensive in that way research shows that it makes the investigator even more convinced that the person is guilty even though they're only defending themselves cuz they're not guilty and so that causes the investigator to get even more aggressive which causes the suspect who's innocent to be even more defensive and it just goes ran and ran around And police don't necessarily know this. The book, uh, Criminal Interrogations and Confessions, the book claims if you use the technique that's in this book, you will uncover the truth and detect lies with, with a very high level of accuracy. And it claims that there are certain behaviors that liars will use. You know when someone's lying in this book, it says that people will avoid your gaze and they'll fidget a lot and they'll change their posture a lot. But research has totally debunked these things, and if if this were actually true, I'm lying all the time because I am fidgeting all the time i'm when I'm recording the podcast, I probably shift in my seat no joke thousands of times right now I'm fiddling with my toes. I'm sitting in a kind of yoga position in my chair, and I'm playing with my toes for no reason. (laughs) And, uh, you know, 10 seconds from now, I'll be uh, playing with my hair or something. I'm I'm a fidgety person, so I'm always lying, according to this book, apparently. Okay. Now, uh, but so uh, the research that this book is based on is from a single flawed study in 1994. So a lot of the things that this book is based on is dubious science. So this this book that interrogators use as a guide for not only their techniques, but for understanding the suspect's behavior and lies, it's all a bunch of crap. Plus, research shows that people are barely better than guessing when trying to detect lies, and experts are barely better than the average person, if at all better. So, in other words, there's, you know, when they've looked into this quite a bit can people detect lies? Is it possible for police to detect when someone's lying? You know, this is a very important thing. And there's a lot of bullshit pseudoscience out there saying that. You can totally tell when someone's lying, you know, if they're looking up to the right or they're looking up to the left or they're fidgeting or, you know, all this, all this crap. Well, when they actually empirically look at this and they set it up, people are actually very terrible at detecting lies. They're something like instead, you know, guessing would be 50%. You know, it's like, oh, I don't know. Maybe he's lying. Maybe he's not lying 50%. Well, people are have a So if if you're just guessing, you'd have an accuracy rating of 50%. Well, people when they study have an accuracy rating of fifty four percent so they're barely better than guessing, meaning that they're wrong uh, you know forty six percent of the time well experts people that are you know expert uh, experts at being able to tell the difference between lying and not lying research shows that they're barely better than the fifty four percent like fifty six percent or and some research says. They're no better than the average person. So this notion that you could read a book or you could take a training as a police officer and be able to tell when someone's lying and when someone's not lying is, is pretty dubious. So, you know, there's that. Now, what I'll say as someone who talks with a lot of people and sometimes people lie to me, teenagers, particularly, (laughs) um, I don't teach teenagers currently, but when I have in the past, you know, I had a wide variety of different kinds of clients. Most of my teenage clients, you know, wouldn't lie to me, but, but some would for one reason or another. And I got, you know, I felt kind of good at being able to detect lies. So it's not as though you can't intuit lies, but I can tell you from experience, I've been lied to, to my face without ever knowing I was being lied to. Um, you know, like years later, I discover, oh, they were lying to me the entire time. And I was totally believing it. And I'm not a naive person. I, I tend to be kind of suspicious of, of teenagers in particular in terms, you know, when they have reasons to lie to me. Incidentally, just as a side note, I would frequently tell my teenage client to be, look, I'd say, look, I'm not your parent. I'm not your teacher. I'm not a cop. And everything you tell me is confidential. So you don't have to lie to me. You could tell me you smoked pot all day today. And I can't tell anyone and I wouldn't want to tell anyone because what's it to me if you smoked pot all day and yet teenagers would still lie to me. It's just hard for teenagers to believe that I wouldn't tell someone. And also it's just sometimes easier for them to lie than to have to deal with what's really happening. But anyway, okay, so let's look into more research here. Research shows that if the police provide fake evidence of guilt, the person is much more likely to provide a false confession. In other words, as the police are interrogating the uh, suspect, the, and the suspect is innocent, and the police say, hey, you know, Raphael in the room next door, he says you did it. Well, when you do this, it, make, it, it is a significant factor in motivating this innocent person to provide a false confession. You know, my guess is, is they're thinking, "Well, geez, I'm screwed now." I mean, this person just told them that I did it. Um, maybe I should just admit it, you know, so that they'll go easier on me or something. Okay, and that's you know what they did to a man and Raphael. They provided. They I think they provided, the sort of false evidence to try to motivate false confessions from the two of them. Research also shows that when investigators minimize the crime the person is more likely to provide a false confession. You know, like, hey, you know, she probably deserved to die, right? You know, you you were just reacting like anyone else would have. It's not a big deal. You know, come on, you can tell us that you did it. That's called minimization, and, and that works on people, and it, it motivates false confessions. So even though you didn't do it, it motivates false confessions. But here's the most important piece of research that I really want to get across. If there's one thing you remember about false confessions, it's this. Research, research shows that not everyone is vulnerable to false confessions, that there's a certain kind of personality profile of a person that is vulnerable to providing a false confession. For instance, res- research shows that teenagers are are vulnerable, generally vulnerable to providing a false confession uh, you know we could we could imagine why uh, you know they're not as mature they are perhaps mentally weaker they are used to being yelled at or something I don't know they're they're more used to complying maybe I don't know also adults with intellectual disabilities are more likely to be vulnerable to false confessing. You know that kid in making a murder documentary. I can't remember his name, but all that kind of comes to mind. So there are certain kinds of people who are vulnerable, people who are compliant, who generally have a compliant personality. Someone who uh, doesn't deal very well with stress. Someone who doesn't deal deal very well with authority. Yelling at them, for for instance, for me. Um, I've been interrogated by the cops before for and I've talked about it before on the podcast and there's been more incidents for other random reasons but but I have never given a false confession because I don't think my personality is the sort of personality that's vulnerable to false confessing. Now, if you pushed me for, you know, 10 days, I'm guessing I probably would become vulnerable, but in the time that I've been interrogated I didn't break under pressure because i i just i just sort of i, I kind of saw through what they were doing too. I was like, oh well, you're obviously trying to get me to to, to confess, and I, I see through your bullshit. You're trying to intimidate me. It's not going to work. But you know, not everyone knows that. Not everyone is obsessed with research on this sort of thing and read and watches documentaries. And you know, some people they don't know any better because they don't have a lawyer and and they're they're worried and and the police start saying things to them like look if you don't confess then things are going to be really bad for you we're we're going to put you away for 50 years for this but if you confess and you know you and you make this an easier process for us maybe we can talk to the judge and get this down to just 10 years i mean wouldn't you rather have 10 years than 50 years well come on just confess well if you're terrified and broken down even though you haven't committed the crime, you might start saying to yourself, so it's the difference. They've already got me on this. You know, They apparently have all this, all this hard evidence, even though they might not, but they're just lying. They're going to get me for 50 years? This is terrible. Maybe I should just admit to doing this. I'll get 10 years, and it's the better option. This is what cops do to people, and this is how they prey on vulnerable minds. Okay? So... That's that's something that we really just have to say. And I, I think it's just terrible sort of injustice to vulnerable people, people who are vulnerable to false confessions. I just feel bad for them and they're timid, compliant people, and then they're just being preyed upon by these aggressive police officers. Okay, also research shows that jurors and judges are highly vulnerable to false confessions. So when court proceedings will present false confessions. Even if there's some evidence that it is a false confession, the juries and judges will will are actually quite influenced by false confessions into influencing their overall you know, decision. Also, research shows that people are not very good at detecting the difference between false and true confessions. So, they'll you know, make up a bunch of false confessions and they'll make up a bunch of true confessions and they'll show them to people. And they find that people have a really hard time telling the difference between a false confession and a real confession. Essentially, you're trying to tell the difference between someone who's lying and who's not lying. And since we've already established that people are terrible at detecting that, they have a hard time detecting the difference between a false confession and a true confession. But here's the, here's the kicker. When they study police... The police are just as bad at detecting the difference between a false confession and a true confession. But the difference here is that the police are more confident in their belief. So when the police are wrong, they're, they're very convinced of their conclusions that are wrong, whereas non-police are, when they're wrong, in general, they're more like, well, I think he's lying, but I'm not really quite sure. But a police officer looks at this oh he's he's definitely lying i 'm a hundred percent sure, even though the guy isn't lying, so it's just interesting again, you would think the expert being the police officer would know more about it and say like, "Well, you know, I've been lied to before and I 've been wrong so you would think the professional would be more realistic about their ability to gauge lies or not because they're professionals. Like for me, for instance, I'm a therapist and have been lied to a lot. And the older I get and the more experience I get, the more I realize just anecdotally that I'm actually not that great of a detector of lies, particularly if the person is good at lying and it's a lie that they're very, that's very important to them. If the lie is, you know, like drug use is often something people will lie about. People can can lie very well if they have practice. You know, pre, you know, addicts who are addicts for years, over the years they become extremely good at lying about it, and um, almost indetectable. And so, and I've learned that over time. And so, as a professional myself who is. sometimes involved in trying to figure out if someone's lying or not. I've learned through experience that it's hard to tell. And so I'm not confident in when I make the decision. So it's like, why are police professionals who are, you know, also involved in trying to detect lies? Why are they more confident in their stupidity? (laughs) You think they'd be more humble, but of course they're not. Okay. Another study, this is another interesting little study. They found that, uh, they're trying to look for the differences between false confessions and true confessions. They're trying to find out if there's any differences linguistically. And they found that in false confessions there's less adjectives. so there's less ad- adjectives, less descriptive words, and there's more nouns and verbs uh, so in relative to adjectives. And this is consistent with other studies showing that when people lie, they tend to have fewer descriptions. So, you know, for instance, if, if someone's lying, so, you know, say they, you have a kid who um, smoked pot that night, went to a party, smoked pot, and he comes home and he's talking to his parents and the parents are like, where have you been all night? And he's like, oh, I went to the movies. I, you know, we went to the movies and that's all that happened, <laughs> you know? And so that there's not a lot of description in there, right? It's just like, we I just went to the movies. But if he said, Oh, I saw Star Wars at 7.05 at the Cineplex in Redmond, Washington. And I was there with Joe and the movie was pretty good. It was kind of long. Uh, the popcorn was good though. You know, like there's a lot of details in there. <laughs> and research shows that when people are lying, they don't have a lot of those details, which makes sense, right? Because if you're lying, how do you come up with a... Bu- it's It's hard to... Spin a story, improv a story on the on the spot. Whereas, if you're telling the truth, you have all that data available to you that you can just sort of riff on because it's in your memory banks. You know. Okay. So, when it comes to uh, uh, false confessions, essentially over time, as the suspect is as the innocent suspect is being broken down and and, uh, you know, badgered and aggressively sort of pressured into telling this lie that they actually did it. They, they have this tough decision they have to make. They, they either continue telling the truth by not confessing, and as a result, they incur increasing levels of abuse and mistreatment, or they can choose to just tell them what they want to hear and everything will immediately get better for them. They'll immediately get food, water, the police will get off their back. They might even be released. So, under stress, and if you're vulnerable to compliance anyway, then many just choose to confess. You know, they're just like, okay, I just want to go home. I just want to have a glass of water. I just want this person to get off my back. What do I need to do to make that happen? Oh, they just want me to confess and sign this piece of paper and I can go home? Fine. I'll sign it. Yes, I did it. You're right. I did it. Let me sign the thing. Okay, can I go home now? That's the essence of false confessing. And it really needs to be understood in the legal system. And it needs to be understood by the police system too. And there's some regulations that are happening to try to stop this sort of thing from happening, like recording the entire interrogation process, which puts the police uh, in a little bit better behavior because they know they're being recorded. And also because they know that that entire recording will go to the court. And if it comes out that the police planted a bunch of thoughts in the person's head and pressured them to falsely confess, then it will throw out the confession. So police don't want that. So when you record the entire interrogation process, it, it tends to reduce false confessions. Now, some people start actually to believe that they did it. You know, I was talking about those three different kinds of confessions. You have the voluntary kind where people just say, yeah, he did it, because they have some sort of weird gain from falsely confessing. And then you have the coerced compliant, which is the main one I've been talking about so far. But then you have the coerced internalized, where people are coerced in falsely confession, but they actually believe that they actually did it you know people will get someone to believe that they actually do this is you know these people uh, according to research research are prone to fantasy and they're you know generally compliant they're they're generally dependent on other people so there's certain personality traits that will lead people to be vulnerable to this internalization process and this is just fascinating to me it's just so interesting that Police officers can break someone down to the level where they can make someone not only admit that they committed a heinous crime, but to make the person believe that they did it too. It's crazy. All right. Well, that is it about false confessions. This episode is over two hours long, and I thought it was only going to be about a half an hour. I probably always say that, right? I'm always like, oh my God, this. Episode is so long. You're probably listening to me right now going, Kirk, you always say that. It's sort of like my grandma, my 101-year-old grandma who died earlier this year. Whenever we'd go to restaurants, we would all order food. And, you know, like you do in restaurants, you order food. Well, she was this tiny little Japanese-American woman. And uh, restaurants, you know, they they have big plates now. And so we'd all get her food. Like, I remember... Just a couple years ago, we were in California, and, and we're at this outdoor restaurant, and everyone ordered this Tex-Mex kind of food, and she ordered like this burger and fries or something. And today, burgers are not the burgers of my youth. In the '70s burgers were these tiny little things, you know. They're, you know, the the way that uh, sliders look now. Sliders are huge. They're, those are those were the burgers of the '70s. Well, the burgers now are just, they're always they always have to be mammoth. Anyway, so the plate comes out sits down in front of her and it's this burger and fries in it. And she, and she always says, Oh my, she always says, she always says that because there's so much food. Look, you know, she's just tiny woman, lots of food. Oh my, I'm never going to finish, finish all this. Someone's going to have to help me with this. She would say, and you know, everyone starts eating and talking and doing our normal thing. And half hour later, we look over at my grandma's plate and she's polished the entire thing. She's eaten the entire huge burger, all the fries. This happened all the time. So similar to my grandma, I always say, oh, my, this podcast is so big. I'm never going to. Um, I don't know why it got so long. And it always is that long. <laughs> oh, it's 11 o'clock. It's my bedtime. and I'm going crazy. All right, well, thanks for joining me out there. Please take care of yourself. Watch the documentary on Amanda Knox on Netflix. Highly recommend. And have a good night and take care of yourself because you deserve it.